Welcome to episode 441 with my guest, Bobby Martinez. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is a mental illness happy hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet uh, to this podcast, it would be awesome if you did so. So just click that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform that uh, you are listening to this. Also, if you could give us a review on iTunes, that would be awesome. All of those things help build the visibility of the podcast, and that brings more advertisers, and that helps support the show. And you can also support the show by being a monthly Patreon donor. You can do it through PayPal as well, but if you do it through Patreon, um, you can occasionally get some some freebie stuff from me. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, and if, if you haven't filled the surveys out yet, there's about a dozen different surveys, and uh, people haven't filled out the happy moments survey in a little while. Uh, they don't have to be big. In fact, the ones that are kind of sublime are a little bit better. I think, because for me, that's a lot more doable are the little happy moments, the little peaceful moments in life than the big, fantastic ones. Anyway, if you haven't done those, go to the website mentalpod.com, and then you'll see a a, uh, a little drop-down menu, and it'll say surveys. And you can either look at the results of other people's surveys, or you can fill out a survey yourself. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself What You Doing, Nico. And she writes, Visiting my sister's homeless encampment. I finally had a chance to see where she was living. I was strangely comforted to learn that she had a bed, a mattress, and a tent with sheets, pillows, and a comforter. She even hung some of her artwork. She and her boyfriend gave me a, quote, tour of the several tents and rain tarps they had linked together. Found objects like scraps of broken plastic and wood constituted shelves, tables, and chairs. Of course, there were flies and buckets of what I assumed was human or food waste. A homemade slingshot for, quote, deterring rats. But but they had made a home. And this was the best option she could find at the time. And she was not alone. She had a partner who clearly cared for her and looked out for her. And they had chosen a location surrounded with similarly situated folk, a community with rules and shared resources. Their tent neighbors looked out for one another, dealt with the, quote, bad ones, and warned each other when they saw the cops. I asked questions instead of being in paralyzing fear, which is somewhat new for me. And I learned so much about her that day. Still, such a fucked up situation which breaks my heart, but so much better than what my imagination had painted. I slept well for the first time in years that night. Thank you for sharing that. And I always wonder when I when I pass a tent uh, encampment, and there's a lot of them here in Los Angeles, I just always wonder about the lives of the people that are in there and... Um, I should interview somebody. This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Demps. She's in her 50s, identifies as asexual, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. 
ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she doesn't elaborate. She's been emotionally abused. Growing up in an alcoholic family automatically sets you up for emotional abuse. My mother was physically there, but mentally gone and unavailable to me. My first long-term boyfriend as an adult was an emotionally unavailable man. I chose what I knew. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Many years after the relationship was over, I was able to realize that I deserved so much better. I realized that what he did to me was abuse. This was a big moment for me. Darkest thoughts. I don't know if this classifies on target in this survey, but I would like to see a former boss get swallowed up by a wood chipper. Actually, that's not as bad as wanting to see him jam a wood chipper. Uh, or a disease, but not before financial ruin. I'm not saying this to be funny. I really do wish this upon her. Darkest Secrets. I beat up a girl at a concert because she wouldn't be quiet. You know, I, I, I wish I could be outraged by that, but people that won't be quiet at movies or just make the concert all about them uh, in fact, I think if you are on somebody's shoulders at a concert blocking someone someone's view, uh, you're fair game for being pushed over. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I used to be ashamed that I had sexual fantasies involving other women. Now I know that there is nothing wrong with this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to ask my mom why she never said she was sorry to anyone. I would ask her why she was unable to say sorry about anything. You know, untreated alcoholism is, it's a motherfucker, man. It's rooted in selfishness and fear and resentment and the warped belief that everyone else is the problem. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home and had a chance to make a very strong connection with a female mentor, a.k.a. my mother. Uh, I wish I had asked my father more about what he wanted in his life and not being a typical selfish teenager. Have you shared these things with others? I've kept a journal for 30-odd years. I've written these wishes down in a million ways over all the years. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm wondering how my little thoughts could make an impact on anyone. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Try not to care what other people think. In the long run, it only counts if you are happy as long as you aren't hurting other people or animals. I think, you know, you wrote, I'm wondering how my little thoughts could make an impact on anyone. Well, you made an impact on me. I chose to read your survey because I think what you're describing is so human and sadly common and I know there's a lot of people that will read this and relate to it and know that they're not alone so that's my two cents and thank you for for filling that out uh, our sponsor for today is Veridesk it's the world's leading standing desk solution helping professionals maintain a healthy active lifestyle in the office or at home Veridesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veridesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. Veridesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways, so if you don't love it, they'll pick it up. 
Veridesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veridesk. And to learn more about Veridesk standing desk solutions, visit veridesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veridesk.com slash work elevated. And as always, today's uh, episode is sponsored by betterhelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, I'm a big fan of it. And, um, I just love being able to do it on my laptop once a week, sitting in my recliner, spilling my guts, and getting uh, a lot of compassion and great guidance from my counselor, Donna. So if you're interested in checking it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor if they feel that they have one who is a good fit for you. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And then finally, one more uh, survey before we get to the interview with Bobby. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Psycho Mom. She writes, I was thinking this morning of the time when I was living in, an I- in Idaho in a little house we rented. I was married to my ex at the time. It was the dead of winter and we were dirt poor. Too poor to maintain our car to get me to work each day. One day, my husband decided to run off to California with a friend and leave me and the two kids behind to fend for ourselves. My car had no heater, and I had to take the kids to the sitter about 25 miles away. In order to defrost the windshield, I took a couple of bricks and heated them on top of the wood stove while I got ready for work. Then I took them out to the car and placed them on hot pads on the inside of the car near the windows. After a while, the ice would melt off and I could get to work before they iced up again. Of course, the kids and I had to be bundled up from head to toe. One morning, I awoke to find two feet of new fallen snow on the ground, which I would have to deal with in order to get out. After my usual ritual of defrosting the windows, I shoveled all the snow that I could from around my car and tried to drive away. The snow was thick and heavy. I was stuck, and the more I panicked, the worse it became. I was so furious at this point, thinking about my husband basking in the California sun, that I decided to do the most logical thing to rectify the problem. I went to his closet, got all the clothes, shoes, and underwear that he left behind, and used them under my tires for traction. I'll never forget the satisfaction I felt as I looked in the rearview mirror at his underwear flying as I drove away. His undies were hanging in the trees till the next spring. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared. And And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work. 
to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Bobby Martinez, uh, who is a certified uh, drug and alcohol counselor and has quite a life story. You have spent a large portion of your life in prison. Yes. And a good portion of that, how many years was in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay? Um, 12 years at Pelican Bay, isolation. Uh, That's how you still have a shred of sanity is Um, is mind-boggling to me. Don't most people go crazy after... Like I, I, a month I've, of solitary confinement. I've, I've witnessed uh, quite a few individuals um, totally lose their mind, you know, start um, eating their own feces and throwing it on the cops. And, you know, that's how you know when somebody's kind of lost it. But the solitary confinement thing, uh, it actually goes back a lot further than that. Um, when I was in the youth authority uh, from 12 years old to 24 years old, um, the majority of my time was spent in what's called the box. And that's solitary confinement. The same thing as the shoe? A lot more severe, actually. Yeah? Yeah. What's the difference between the shoe is um, SHU, for the listener, single housing unit? They're, they're a single housing unit, but, but the, the, um, the pods are eight, eight, eight cells to a pod. And the doors are, are um, there's little holes in the door so you can actually communicate with everybody. Where in the youth authority, um, they're just little cells that are solid doors where you can't talk to anybody. The time is less. Of course, right. the time is a lot less. So I spent like maybe 30 days in there at a time. But I spent a lot of time in there, in and out. Where in, where in Pelican Bay, it was, it was just 12 years straight. And Pelican Bay is, in California, that's where the most dangerous criminals in California uh, are. Up, up until 2015. Um, and then so, what happened? So from 1996... Or 1991, actually, when Pelican Bay opened up, um, they were sending, um, quote unquote, the worst of the worst in, in the California Department of Corrections, um, criminal gang members, uh, criminal gang member associates, um, and people that just could not uh, be with the general population. They were just too violent sometimes. Um, but f- but for the most part, um, they're just criminals. They're 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 human beings, and and they're being locked up. So a lot of the family members, uh, psychiatrists, doctors, um, judges, lawyers, started a coalition, and they finally they finally closed it down to due to cruel and unusual punishment. Um, a lot of people, like I said, that were just going crazy. Closed down Pelican Bay, or the they the closed down the the indeterminate shoe. The I indeterminate see. shoe would be like, <clears throat> if for instance, somebody said that I was a, a prison gang member, um, another inmate. And then they would put me in there for an indeterminate amount of time based on that, based on somebody just saying, this guy is this. So it would. It, so now then later on they change it to three people have to say it um, to finally um, they can't put you in there for more than a uh, maximum of five years now as of 2015. My brother was there from 1991 to 2015. So he's now on, on the main line. Which is general, general population. General population. And he's actually one of the most intelligent people you'll ever talk to. Why would somebody being a gang member automatically qualify them for solitary confinement? Um, so that goes into prison politics. 
um, which I won't get too too much in detail. Um, uh, is there a reason why you don't want to get into too much detail? Um, it's 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 just a lot of hearsay. Um, uh, most of the people were, were were not even involved in criminal gang uh, in mm. prison gangs, uh, just based on uh, people feeling uncomfortable. If if a so, if certain person was around, then they would just go and tell the police that this guy's doing this. Mm. So th- the reason why most of them were in solitary confinement was because they would uh, the, the authorities would feel that they would be out there, um, uh, you know, calling shots. I see having people. Uh, Whacked. Whacked, yeah. If you, for Greenlit? Greenlit, yeah. So, Belista? Yeah, there you go. So you know a lot more than I do. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah, I've had a few friends that have walked the yard. Yeah, so I have, I have a lot of friends, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really happy with what I'm doing now with my life. Because uh, all I would be doing in there was eating up their soups, right? Yeah. Instead of uh, being out here taking care of my family, which is, that's what it's really all about. Getting and, your spread and, together, and they're yeah, and they're you know a real friend would would actually want that for another friend, right? Yeah. So where where does it begin for you? Give us a, an overview of your life story and what brought you to uh, begin to get in trouble with uh, the law and the youth authority and all and all that. Paint a picture of. So there there was a time in my life when I was actually proud to say that I was actually born into this lifestyle, um, literally, because my mother was uh, 14 years old when I was born. My, my mother and my father were 14 years when I was born, 14 years old. So they were both gang members. Um, my mother was a drug addict. My father drank a lot. Um, so I was literally born into the lifestyle. Um, by the time my mother was 25, she had uh, five other boys from my stepfather who adopted me. Um, then she left him had another kid with another guy, and she was in and out of prison. So she basically raised us up as though we were in the in prison. Mm. Uh, she made us like uh, I was a neat freak for a long time. I finally got over that. <laughs> so that's that's the kind of the, the fruits that my wife now enjoys that I keep things clean. And, t- t- and talk about why that's important in prison. Um, because uh, you're you're in a cell, mostly in solitary confinement. It's very very important to. To pick up after yourself, you know, you don't want to leave your sock your socks on your Sally's bed, mm-hmm. or or um, you know, not take care of the toilet area after you're done with it. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the way my mom basically raised us. Um, I was I was born in Pacoima, California, uh, 1965. Um, I think the year that the Dodgers won the World Series. I think Sandy Koufax was um, Cy Young and MVP. So I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah. But um, being born in Pacoima, um, that's it, it, it's it's a predominantly a Mexican American. Um, gang gang culture there. I, I mean, it's a little bit different now, but that's how it was back then. Um, and was it a variety of gangs, or was there one? Back then, there was like three different gangs. Ooh. Now there's like a whole bunch of other ones. Right. So, but my mother ended up uh, getting into a fight with, with one of the neighbors because um, she was really jealous of my mom. So my mom was having a fist fight with this woman in front of me and my brothers, broad daylight, and the woman's husband comes out with, with a pair of knives, hands one to my mom and one, one to his wife, and says, if you guys really want to go at it, go at it like that. Um, my mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. Um, wow. So it was, it was you know, it's, it's, it's a memory that I still have. It's, it's, it's trauma that I'm still dealing with because <clears throat> it's very clear. I, w- I think I was like nine years old. Um, my grandmother immediately took custody of us. Um, and what, if, if you... 
are okay with going back to that <clears throat> moment and sharing what you remember thinking or feeling as that kid? Um, it's a lot of confusion um, because we had seen our mom fight a lot. Any little thing. I mean, if there was another kid that was bigger than me or one of my brothers, um, we, all we had to do is come home and tell my mom, oh, you know, so-and-so hit, hit David or Raymond or mm-hmm. one of my other brothers. And my mom would immediately just drop everything and go to that person's house, pull their mom out by the hair, and, and just beat the crap out of them right there in broad daylight. So it was it was one of those things that we were kind of used so to. Your mom though, was a deeply traumatized person. Yes, yes. She was the baby of nine, um, spoiled rotten. Um, there, there's something, it's, it's kind of funny, but not really funny. When my grandfather told me one time that my mom at 13 years old would run home from middle school, Pacoima Junior High, and run to her room just to start sucking on her bottle, her baby bottle. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that's, that's, yeah. so that's how spoiled she Wait, was. But, but where did her, her anger, I mean, obviously she wasn't getting some need met that she had this rage inside her. Or, it's, it's really, it's really funny because the rest of her siblings are nothing like that. Really? My aunts and uncles are totally cool. Um, they still live today. My mom was the youngest and, and she, she passed away at 49. Um, my aunts are in their seventies now, and so there was never an event or there had to be. There had to have been. I mean, I I can't I can't sit here and speculate, right? Um, but obviously, some kind of trauma happened to her as a little yeah. girl. Um, she was very beautiful. My mom was very beautiful. What was her name? Her name was Gracie. Yeah, after my daughter and after your dog. <laughs> and after my dog. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. Is is you're sharing this? The first thing you shared is you know, you're nine years old and you watch your mother kill another person your kids right now are in my backyard playing with my dog (laughs) and my buddy taylor's hanging there with them and and just the thought of those kids seeing something like that uh obviously that's not lost on you you're you're spending time with your kids and they're that that exact age they are the exact age as me and my brother's but there was five of us, and there's two of my sons. Do you remember saying anything? Did you shut down? Did you cry? No, I, I, what I remember is, is um, we didn't we didn't realize the, the the magnitude of of what had happened. We realized that it was a fight. We right. saw some blood, and then immediately we were swept up by my mom's homegirls okay. and taken to another one of the. Uh, we were, this was in the projects in Pacoima, taken to another unit. Um, those helicopters and cops, and it was it was a big scene. We were in there. You know, we were watching TV, I remember. I think we were watching uh, Bugs Bunny or something. Mm-hmm. It was just another thing. Um, when my grandmother came, she she swept us up, which was which, which something that she always did because my mom spent time in and out of prison. But this time, she was going for a long time. So it wasn't... Um, How long did she serve? Um, almost five years for a manslaughter. Yeah. They gave her a manslaughter because of the circumstances. They said, ultimately, that the the, the lady's husband got involved which nobody saw. He was acting like he was breaking them up, trying to stab my mom, but he actually stabbed his wife. He did? Yes. He didn't actually... So they couldn't tell which which wound actually killed her because she was stabbed so many times. She was stabbed by your mother and her yes. husband? Mm-hmm. So they gave my mom a manslaughter. She took a manslaughter deal rather than take it. And this was in 1974, maybe? Yeah. 1974. So that set the, the, the stage for what in, in your life? Was that, would you consider that to be? Um, that wasn't the biggest 
that was pretty traumatic that my mom was gone uh that that she committed a murder was was not really uh registered what what really registered in my life at that time because shortly thereafter um maybe like six months later um my stepfather showed up for my brothers so they were um removed from my grandma's house by him and so i was completely alone at that time that was that was the something that that I'm still dealing with. So you lost your your brothers and your mom mm-hmm. in the in the course of uh maybe less than a year. Less than a year. And I remember they were leaving uh, cuz we were upstairs me and my grandmother were looking down on them as they went downstairs. The two twins left. There's twins right after me and uh my little brother um Stevie. Uh he was really close to my grandmother mm-hmm. and his dad told him do you want to come and I looked at him I said don't go, you know, and he he left too. That was his father, you know. So that 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 really um it it's hard to explain now looking back at um the effect of that. But I know that shortly thereafter, um nine, ten, eleven, twelve, maybe like three years later, um I ended up doing armed robberies and you know, ended up in the youth authority. And and who were you were you living with your grandparents yes. at that point? Yes. But you had no siblings and no I had two smaller siblings. They were they were already living with my grandmother. I gotcha. Um, a lot lot younger. My I mom had just had a couple of more kids. Um, so we moved to North Hollywood, which is not far from here. Um, I drove up just to pass some time back mm-hmm. past North Hollywood High, where I I think I lasted there for like a couple of minutes, maybe a couple of minutes, and then I was in YA um, for the third time. Uh, right there on uh, on, on Magnolia and Colfax. Yeah, yeah. And I went by the by the by the um, North Hollywood High School, I mean, uh, North Hollywood Park, which mm-hmm. is basically where I used to go to ditch school from Walter Reed Junior High. Yep. So I, I haven't been on this side of town for a while. So okay. it does trigger a little bit of thoughts. What, what does it bring up? Does it bring up any particular feelings? Well, I, I got involved in a local gang here in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, when my mom's family found out I was, in, I was involved in the gang over here, they were like, what are you talking about? You're from Pacoima. Right. I said, no, I'm not from Pacoima. Uh, I'm from this gang now, and um, so it brings up a lot of a lot of that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up being like uh, at 12 years old, I was the youngest person involved in this gang. The closest person to my age was 17, and then it went up. And you were 12. I was 12. So the my, the closest person that was to my age was 17, and then it went 19, and then in the 20s. And give <clears throat> give me a picture of a typical day, and where you jumped in? Yeah. I, I was describe for 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 somebody what what that means. So I, I had a little friend. Um, I was twelve, right? I was twelve. A little um, Mexican national friend. You know, we used to steal bikes in the area, and you know, little petty crimes like that. And one day we were walking by this uh, this area called the Crazy Alley, which is on Coenga and Oxnard. That's where I grew up. And there, there used to be a long alley there, and they called it the Crazy Alley. That's right, where the, all the electrical wires go over. Exactly, on, that's Whitnall Highway. I lived that's, on I lived on Whitnall Highway, so I remember those that noise just continuously. Um, so I was coming home one day, and I was I was walking by the Crazy Alley, and there was two guys out there, maybe like nineteen, eighteen, and they asked me where I was from. You know, that mean what gang are you from? Right. And I said I'm from no gang, but I grew up in Pacoima. They said, well, you're not from Pacoima, right? They didn't jump you in. I said, no. So they asked me about three or four more questions, and they said, okay, well, we're going to get you into our gang. 
And I looked down the alley and there was like a bunch of guys out there. And I said, well, I got to go home. I, I got to eat dinner. <laughs> My grandma's waiting for me. You know, this won't take long. This won't take long. And I, so they started walking me down the, down the dark alley. And I said, well, what about my friend? Because two other guys were questioning him. They said, oh, no, we don't, want, we don't want him. He ended up getting into the rival gang. Really? He ended up getting into the, the enemy of this gang, which was really, really funny. <laughs> and why did they want you and not him? Based on their questioning. Yeah. Based on their questioning. Because they wanted somebody that, that would know. This, this gang, um, this particular gang is very, very picky. So it's, it's, it's one of the oldest gangs in Los Angeles. Uh, they've been around since 1949. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the Zoot Zoot gangs. Uh, they, they're originally from South Central. Then they had a, a, a chapter in West LA, another chapter in Hollywood. And now they have a chapter out here since, uh, 75. They've been out here in the valley. So they're very, very particular. And it's, it's always been kind of a small gang. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a small gang, but, but, uh, I guess the mindset is different mm -hmm. from most other gangs. Um, so yeah, they took me down in the alley and, uh, they counted up to 14. That, that was how much they counted up to. Um, and 14 guys, no, 14 seconds. Oh, 14 seconds. Yeah. Uh, people kicking and punching. Yes. And... Yes. They didn't hurt me bad. No. They, they were just hitting my body. Yeah. They saw I was scrawny. I was a scrawny little kid. Yeah. And then after that, um, it was all downhill. I mean, I, I just fit right in. I fit right into the lifestyle. Uh, I was already dressing the part. And, and it, did it provide you with a feeling of belonging and an identity that you were lacking? More than anything, more than anything. As I said, uh, when my brothers were removed, I think, I think I really, really um, needed to fill that gap, and they filled that gap, and I was all in. I was so much in that um, I was the one that, that ended up in the youth authority first. So these guys are seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, had never been to the youth authority. So when I went to the youth authority for my first time, uh, I got out when I was seventeen. I went in when I was 12, about five years, almost five years for armed robberies. And uh, when I got out, it was like, I was like, uh, looked upon uh, really respect, a lot of respect, a lot of admiration, because I went and did what they hadn't done. Mm -hmm. it didn't last for very long. I went back to YA for five more years for more armed robberies. Um, and you must have not been very good at your armed robberies. <laughs> I was very, very reckless. Were you? And I think I were you Were you drunk and high too? All the time. Yeah. Drunk, drunk, PCP, um, marijuana, alcohol, whatever we can get. And you've been sober now how long? Uh, three years. That's awesome. Yeah, going on three years, yeah. First time. So give me any big moments leading up to your darkest times, which I have to imagine were in solitary at Pelican Bay or no? The darkest time in my life? Yeah. Would have to have been about... Um, three years ago. <laughs> three years ago, yes. Yeah. Um, in uh, 2000, and I went I went back to prison in 2012 for $40 worth of meth. Um, the judge gave me four years with halftime, so I was supposed to do two years. Um, because I was a um, validated um, prison gang, mm -hmm. um, you get no time cuts. So I went to prison. Uh, the first thing they do is throw me in the shoe, uh, Tehachapi shoe. Shoes are the shoes, segregated housing unit. Right. Um, so I was in Tehachapi doing 38 months for, what, $40 worth of crystal meth. And now it's a misdemeanor. Uh, I would have did the whole four years, uh, but Prop 47 went through. So they kicked me out six months early. I got out, determined to change my life. Um, I was like full-hearted Catholic. 
I loved Catholicism. Um, the nun would come in every every Thursday, pull me out of my cell, put me in a little a little cage, and give me my uh, catechism. Mm. And um, finally, uh, Father Boyle came from Homeboys, mm. and uh, did my communion. And, and I, I did my Holy Communion like three years ago, <laughs> actually in 2015. So when I got out, I was determined to change. I went I went back to the woman that had my two sons, the ones that were playing in your backyard. Mm. Um, so this was in 2015 when I got out. Determined to change. Um, she was doing something else. Um, she wasn't ready to, to stop drinking. That's all she was doing was drinking. And so... Um, I thought I could change her. I knew nothing about alcoholism or, or addiction. Um, I just or, or codependence. None of that. None of that. Codependence is, is now that I know is, is one of the most difficult to to treat. Sure, because it's so easy for that person to think the problem is the drinker. It is. It is. Um, so she ended up getting pregnant. Or I should say, only the drinker is the problem. <laughs> yeah. So I I joined her once in a while. I mean, I wasn't completely sober. But I was working for a moving company, uh, 14-hour shifts, and I would come home, and she would still be drinking. She tried to stop. She really tried to stop. Um, she would fix herself up, and I always knew she was drinking. Um, she would just try to stop, but I didn't, I, I didn't think she wanted to. So after the baby was like seven months old, I took all three kids and left. Um, I left her, took three kids to the hotel, um, paying a babysitter, still working, uh, maybe like two or three weeks after that, DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services, called me up and and um, said that they had picked up my sons from school and that I was to bring in the baby um, to the office as soon as possible. I had no idea what was going on. But I was sober for 15 months, off and on, maybe a drink or two. And so I took the baby into the office. My two sons were standing there with two workers. Um, they were not that young. They were young, but they knew what was mm -hmm. going on. And I had to, I I handed the baby over to the worker, and that was that was the darkest moment of my life, because when I left there, um, I immediately went and got some uh, methamphetamine, a big bottle of tequila, and went and got a hotel room, and I had a really nice Mercedes Benz at the time, and that's what I was living in, mm. and um, that was a. Uh, and were you hell. still were you still gang banging? No, no, gang banging mm. was way behind. Yeah, gang banging I left behind a long, long time ago, so it was just just. Uh, that was the darkest moment of my life. And were the children taken away because neither you nor your wife were sober? They were taken away because I didn't take them out of harm's way fast enough, they said. Mm. I said, well, wait a minute, I did take them from the home. And they said, well, you didn't do it fast enough. So fast enough is uh, now I, I tell my, my patients during group, um, what is fast enough? If your child is about to put their finger in a light socket, how fast do you protect that child? Instantly. So in all reality, uh, my daughter shouldn't be born because the same day that I got out and she was still drinking, I, according to the Department of Children and Family Services, I should have took the boys that day. So it, it is what it is. I mean, now um, there's a new audience, a new audience with, uh, ordinance with the uh, Department of Children and Family Services that they're not removing the children simply for substance use uh, disorder. So there has to be other, other things involved. Simply for the p parents getting high or drunk, they're no longer removing the children because of the trauma involved with the loss and separation. Right. So they finally came to the realization that right. it causes more trauma. And yet, how do you deal with people that are putting their children, you know, because there's a gray area between 
stay the fuck out of somebody's life. It's going to be worse for the kids to take mm-hmm. them out. And this child is around drugs 24 hours a day and chaos. And this is no life for them. But foster care isn't great for them either. So what? What? How does that? So you. you so you. So I guess I'm. I'm just guessing that uh, DCFS's mindset on this is that they're weighing out the um, what trauma is worse. Right. Is 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 it? I mean, we're putting the children and the and the parent in treatment because now it's all about treatment. It's all about harm reduction. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing. That that's 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 what's popular right now is harm reduction. So if we can uh, reduce the parent from doing meth to to uh, marijuana or alcohol, then then it's a success, right? So we're we're, we're we might be um, putting them in a residential. Um, the parent might be able to keep the children if the children are being fed, mm-hmm. um, if the children are being taken care of. Even though they're on drugs, a lot of parents are still taking care of their kids. They're just not giving them the full attention. It's impossible. Right. Because they're dealing with their addiction, right. so then the parent goes to outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. So there's many different avenues. So you, you weigh the difference. Um, so this this is a this is a, a real number here. Um, it's uh, just for the simple loss and separation that my children suffered because they were in in uh, foster care for one year. That's a long time. So one year, twelve months, they were in foster care. Um, it's four hundred percent chance, four hundred percent likely that they will grow up to be addicts for that one situation that happened in their life, not even counting all the problems that they had while their mom and I were using drugs before I went to prison the first time, not even counting all the um, me not being there, mm-hmm. their mother getting drunk, uh, police showing up at the house. That's that's all other stuff piled onto the loss and separation when they were in foster care. So there's a really, really high percentage that my children can grow up to be addicts um and we're not even talking about the gene that's going to get passed down right so um that's what that's what's being weighed out so as a parent the best thing that i can do right now is is uh is educate my children on on addiction Mm -hmm. and what they might have so I, I tell my patients during group all the time, and I call them patients because that's what they ask us to call them. I'm not a doctor. Right. <laughs> they ask us to call them. Instead of clients, we call them patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always I always say, you know what, my, my nine-year-old can come in here and run this group right now. He knows what addiction is. He can tell you what addiction is. He probably doesn't comprehend it completely, but he can probably run this group. Oh, yeah. And that's that's my main focus right now as a father, to help educate my children. Let's go back to... When you were in Pelican Bay, mm-hmm. uh, you went in in, in, in what year? Uh, I got there in 19, 1991, 1994, I went to Corcoran uh, Shoe. Um, so I was in Corcoran Shoe for two years. Um, and what were you in prison for? I was in prison for armed robberies again. Okay. Um, I went in 1991. Uh, I finally got out in 2006. So I was I got in there uh, in, two, in 90, 95, and I paroled in 96. So I was in the shoe from 94 to 2006. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and you're getting sober and taking a hard look at the things that you've done and the harm that you've caused people. Give me some highlights of moments where you finally, if if you did, saw and felt the depth of the effect that your actions had on on others i think uh 
when my wife and I, she's my wife now. We've been together for, she's, she's actually a lot younger than I am. She's 22 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, when we finally got back together, um, when our, when our children were, were returned to us, um, and we ended up in a Pentecostal church, a Chatsworth Foursquare church. We ended up there as a compromise. One of us wanted to go to AA, the other one wanted, and this was on New Year's, mm-hmm. New Year's Eve. So one of us wanted to spend it at AA, the other one wanted to spend it at the church. So we compromised. We said, we'll stay here till 11, um, and then we'll go to AA. We ended up staying there till the whole night um, until the next morning we were there. And that night, um, we accepted Jesus together. You know, they, you know, all they ask is anybody accepted God. So we walked up there. We were the only ones, and we were holding hands, and we accepted Jesus together. I think maybe um, weeks after that, going to church often, um, I just fell on my knees one day at the altar, and uh, and I broke down, and and that's when everything just came flooding. It just flooded. I mean, everything that had happened to me. And so, what th- thoughts and feelings and, it, it, and memories came up when you as, when you broke down? Not that many memories, but I think just a lot, a lot of a trauma. That because as a Christian, um, we are able to take it off of us and give it to God. And I, I think that was the biggest thing. It still is. It still is. I don't, I don't cry that much anymore. Mm-hmm. But I did cry for maybe like a year every time I went to church. Um, as my wife, you know, she, she has a lot of trauma too. Um, so that helps a lot. And, and were the, the tears of sorrow, relief, sorrow, sorrow, regret, sorrow, sadness? All that. All that. Shame? Shame mostly. Shame yeah. mostly. Cause D- just describe some of the things that you're most... If you're comfortable, of course, most ashamed of in your in your past. Well, once again, once again, it's it's not that far back. Um, So, you know, my mom always prided herself on us never getting taken. She was a gang member. Always had somebody in the house. She was she was a heroin addict for her whole life. Um, And I remember her always talking about, oh, so and so just got their kids taken away. How stupid is that person, you know? And I remember, even though she would go to prison, my grandma was always there, but I never put that in connection mm-hmm. with, with us never getting removed. If my grandma wasn't there, we probably would end up in foster care now that I think about it. So I would go recently before I got sober to these houses where people are doing crystal meth, and they'd be talking about somebody got their kids taken away. I would say, well, how, how could she be so stupid? Mm-hmm. You know, what the heck's wrong with that person? You know, how, how could they be so dumb to let this happen to their lives and they're here getting high? So when it happened to me... um it was like uh, one of the biggest shames of my life. Um, I remember when they when they finally gave us uh, overnight visits because they start out with um, with uh, monitor visits and then unmonitor visits and then finally overnight visits. So when my three kids started staying the night from Friday to Sunday, my little girl, she was 18 months at the time, she knew when Sunday was coming around because she would see us packing her stuff and she would start crying. And my wife didn't have to experience this because she would be at work. So I would have to take the kids to the front. We were living in the back house, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the and the uh, the foster mother would pick them up, um, and I would have to put my daughter in the in the car seat, screaming and kicking and crying and throwing a tantrum, and it was kind of hard to buckle her in. And I could hear her screaming like down the street, driving oh away. Oh my god! So oh I, my god, that is heartbreaking. So one day I went, I went, I heard her screaming, and I was walking back because we lived in the back house. I walked back and I and I sat down inside there and I and I cried like a baby. I literally bawled and I, and I just let it out and and then the next day I was thinking, "Wow, why did I cry like that?" I knew it wasn't for her. 
because she's a baby. She's going through that. It, and then I realized it was my shame. It was the shame and guilt that I felt for myself for letting this happen. For letting this happen. Because I, I felt that I had a little bit more intelligence than that. I wonder, too, if if there wasn't a, <clears throat> a part of you remembering that that happened to you. You're absolutely as, right. As a, as a kid. I mean, don't let me put words in your mouth. No, but, but that, that's... Uh, I know oftentimes I can't cry for myself, but I can cry if something happens that can represent the part of me I'm sad about but don't want to face. So Does that what, make sense? What I hear you saying is that I was crying for Bobby when he was younger. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that wasn't also a part of it. You know, all of those, all of those you things. Know, you know, uh, you asked me about some... some uh, um, dark times at Pelican Bay. Um, so I should share this with you. Um, during the 12 years that I was there, and, and before I go a little further, I just want to say that, that I chose to go there. I chose to go to, I chose to go to prison. When I, when I finally finished with the youth authority, I was 24 years old. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go visit my brother in prison. My brother had been in prison for maybe like, uh, five or six years already. He's life for now. He's been in there since 1982. 1985, he got arrested um, for a murder robbery. He's still in there. He has 45 to life. So I was like, I just, I was high one day, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go visit my brother. And I started doing crimes, and, and I wanted to get caught, and I finally got caught. I had like 29 armed robberies. And when I went to prison, I needed to get to Pelican Bay. The only way to get to Pelican Bay is to do other stuff in prison. And I remember when I was in Corcoran Shoe, um which is a lot less isolated. It's still, mm-hmm. it's still segregated housing, but you, you come out with, with a group on your little yard. Um, I remember I went to board, and, and they told me, uh, Mr. Martinez, if you don't settle down, we're going to send you to Pelican Bay. And I, and I remember looking at them and telling them, don't you know that's where I want to go? And they looked at me like if I was insane. I saw the look on their eyes, and, and I remember that clearly. They looked at me like, what, what the heck? And I said, because that's where my brother's at. I need to see my brother. And finally, I made it up there after two years of doing all kinds of stuff. Um, Anything you want to share? The worst thing I did in prison, and, and I really, really felt bad, and I still have a hard time with it, is um, uh, there was a racial thing going on. You know, there's a lot of racist, racial stuff going on in prison between uh, blacks and Mexicans. And this particular situation was going on for a few months on the yards, mm-hmm. and then it would come back to the whole to the uh, uh, administrative segregation. That's the place they put you right before you go to the shoe, um, before you get transferred. And um, I got on the bus. Um, I had a shank on me mm-hmm. that they didn't find, and I had a cuff key. Did you have it keistered? I had it keistered, yes. Yeah. And I had a cuff key in my mouth uh, uh, to come out of my handcuffs. And I came out of my cuffs um, as we got to the unloading dock at, at, at Corcoran, and I ended up um, stabbing five black people on that bus. Um, it was it was really really unfair because um, they still had their handcuffs on. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God I didn't kill anybody. Um, thank God it was a bunch of superficial wounds because I remember they were in the holding cell next to me after the incident, and they were like uh, they had little bandages on them. There was mm-hmm. like five of them in there, and they were looking. They were telling me, hey, "You didn't do anything to us. You know, you could have killed us. You could have killed us." And I remember thinking that that's absolutely right. I could have, but I didn't. Were they taunting you? Kind of. Yeah. I got you. Now that I think about it, maybe. Um, 
Because they, I, I, they I did want to get me for that. Oh yeah, yeah. The <laughs> oh whole, the whole like Crips and Bloods. They, they, they really wanted me to get me for that. Right. Um, but and, it, but but it, but it was what was going on. And it, was this something that the shot caller said? No, this is something know, that, that you me took, and my Sally decided to do. Because I remember my Sally saying, "This is your chance. This is your chance to be somebody in here." And I remember that, but I didn't take that chance. My chance would have been if if somebody would have died. Right. So it wasn't such it wasn't such a big thing. Um, even that didn't get me to Pelican Bay. There's, I still had to do other stuff. Um, and, and and what? How did you make a cuff key? And it was what a was your key. shank made out of? It was a real key. Oh. And, and, and somebody, a guard had been bribed or something maybe. for it? We or? got it from some other white guy. Okay. White guys always had this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> uh, they're very, very, uh, well, there was, there was a, it, it was a white guy that had it. Uh-huh. And he told a white me, prisoner? Yeah. And he told me what he was going to do and on the bus the next day. And he had a really, really big shank. And he was going to kill somebody. Um, unfor- fortunately for me... Uh, the metal detector kept going off on him because mm-hmm. his shank was too big. It was too big, yeah. So they, they put him in an isolated cage on the bus. So I, as I was walking in on the bus, he gave me the key with his mouth, and mm-hmm. I grabbed it. So I ended up in Pelican Bay, and, and what, what I wanted to share with you is, is during the, those those um, five years that I or twelve years that I was there, ten, mm-hmm. ten years that I was in Pelican Bay, um, my mother died. At 49, my father died at 50. My grandparents who raised me both died, and my baby brother was murdered. Um, he was stabbed stabbed to death. So those five people died during that time. Wow. That's the only time you're allowed to get a phone call. So me and my brother received five phone calls in that time period. And that's it? That's it. Um, and the reason why I bring that up, because this is how much it, this is how much it hurt me when I had to hand my baby over to the to the to the social worker i remember that feeling very clearly because it's not that long ago um it was the worst feeling of my life that's why it's easy for me to say that's the darkest time of my life and those deaths combined don't come close to that feeling that i felt when i had to hand that little girl over and that little girl is gracie that's gracie yeah, yeah. who and my gracie is chewing on a bone right now at uh, <laughs> at bobby's feet um Describe solitary confinement in, in Pelican Bay. And, and were you able to reconnect with your uh, brother? And, and uh, actually, actually, me and my brother became Sally's the first night I got there. And how how was that? Clearly, wasn't just random. Um, no, no. Um, well, and, and, and at that time, if you had a family member when you got there, you let you let the officers know during intake. And they they would immediately sell you up. Oh, they would. Yeah. So he left his Sally that he had for like five years mm. just to come with me. Um, you know, he's he's six foot three. My bo- both of they're twins. They're both six foot three. Uh, all my brothers are six foot something. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of short and I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had I had a um, I was anemic when when I was like three months old. So I I don't know that probably stopped my growth a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, seeing him again, it was kind of shocking to see him after all that time. But um, it, it was great. We were Sally's uh, for almost six years. Yeah. So we had to go through my mom's death together. Um, my baby brother was, was, was really hard. He was the youngest. He got stabbed mm-hmm. to death like 30 times in the head on uh, Cahuenga and Oxnard. And, and what was that over? Um, 
he was the baby of the family. So he would run around the neighborhood. He was all my, by the way, all my brothers ended up following me into the same gang. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one sister who, who's from Pacoima. Mm-hmm. So all of us were in prison at the time. He was the only one out, my baby brother. Um, he was uh, 27 or something, I think. This was in 1998. And he just believed that he can do whatever he wanted in the neighborhood. Uh, there was two guys. Uh, uh, he felt uh, like I'm connected. Exactly, exactly. No one's going to do nothing to me because of my brothers. Right. And that was true for, for the most part. But these two guys ended up moving into that neighborhood, my neighborhood. Uh, they were from South Central. Um, they knew everybody in my neighborhood. They were accepted there. They were cool as long as, you know, they mm-hmm. didn't bring their gang there. And uh, on New Year's Eve, on New Year's Eve, uh, my brother was drunk, walked up to them, and, and started pulling their car stereo out of their car right in front of them. So my brother gets in a fight with the owner of the car. Uh, my brother starts stabbing this guy. Um, the other guy, who's the cousin of the guy my brother was fighting, uh, started stabbing my brother. So the one that my brother was stabbing died. My brother died on New Year's Day the, the next day from uh, the head wounds. And um, that's how he died. Wow. So. And my mom had to suffer through that, too. Uh, my mom also lost, lost my little sister when she was five through, wow. through pneumonia. She was the only sister at the time. That's the first death that I ever experienced with my little sister. Yeah. I was I was visiting my dad. Because um, I, when I found out who my dad was, I started visiting him on the weekends. Mm-hmm. They picked me up a little early. My aunt, my, da- my dad's sister, and uh, she just, she looks back at me. Uh, they're driving me home. I said, why are you guys taking me home so early? They said, oh, your, your, your sister died. And, and I remember clearly that only one tear came down. One tear. I remember it was one tear. That's it. And my aunt, my aunt uh, looks back and she says, "Don't cry. She's she's with she's with God. She's she's in heaven now." And then uh, okay, I remember that. Um, maybe like a month later, my grandma died. Her mom, my mm-hmm. dad's mom, and I remember my aunt at the funeral was literally almost bringing down the casket. One of those screaming. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the back and saying, "She's the one that told me not to cry for my sister." You know, and that that's such a it's such an uh, um, a tragedy and, and, and so wrong to tell children not to cry, especially yeah. little boys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's stuff it down, stuff it you down. Know, you know, my son, um, um, Raymond, he, he'll cry. Yeah. He, he cries. And I remember that's how I was. So at first it would bother me. Why are you crying? Why are you always crying? You know, you look at him wrong, he starts crying. He's emotional. And, and then now I remember that's how I was. I would cry for anything. Yeah. Those are good people to have in the world, people that cry. Easily. Yes. He's, he's, you know, his mom was just, I, I heard, I overheard his mom talking to him today, you know, giving him a hug and telling him that yeah. she really appreciates um, his compassion and yeah. his, his emotions, that he's really good-hearted. She appreciates that about him. I didn't get mm-hmm. involved in the conversation, but I, I just heard that today, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk about the mental aspect of being in solitary confinement. Things things that the average person has no idea what people do to cope, what it's like emotionally. Um I'm glad I'm glad you asked me that question, Paul. So the the the, the thing that's that that stands out the most as soon as you get there, it's like um the fellows will ask you, What are you studying? What are you studying? Uh, what do you mean? I watch TV. I'm watching novellas. 
uh, soap operas on the Spanish Channel. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, what are you studying? Okay, so so they want to know what what's what you're studying. Literally, um, if you're not studying anything, then they will they will pay for your correspondence courses. So I, I who, who are these? The other fellas in there. I have a couple of friends that are millionaires in there. They're never getting out, but you know, I have a friend that that owns a lot of shares in Microsoft. That when his when his parents died, he, they left him a little bit of money, and he he invested all that into Microsoft when it was just coming out. So he's a millionaire now. He's never going to get out, but his family's well taken care of. I mean, I visited his family in mm-hmm. uh, in San Bernardino, and they have like four houses on the same block. You know, <laughs> so so it's their way of saying, "What are you going to? How are you going to spend your time?" Yes. So, so the, the, the most important things are, are, are education and exercise. So exercise, I, I mean, that was my new addiction and that, and that goes really well with, with, with meth addicts is, is we know that mm-hmm. exercise is one of the best things for treatment for meth addicts. So I didn't know that then, mm-hmm. but I mean, uh, I used to do like a lot of burpees, a lot of burpees, um, so that's it's the, the prison exercise of choice. It is. It is, especially yeah. in the shoe because you're so confined. Yeah. There's no. Uh, I think the rec yard is um, probably eighteen by six. Uh, concrete walls, eighteen yeah. by six. That's the rec yard. Yeah. And there's no direct sunlight ever. It's, have you seen the movie Shot Caller? Mm, no. I'd be interested to know what you thought of it. I stumbled across it on I don't know, it was Netflix or something. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I thought it was really interesting, but having never been in prison, um, uh, have you watched any documentaries on Pelican Bay? I don't think I have. So that that would that would I would suggest that. Yeah, um, it's pretty gloomy. It's pretty sad. It's pretty dark. But so you can get an idea of of, of just how much it takes to come out of there with with some kind of sense. You know, it, it amazes me. Um, because it's Northern California and it's overcast already, right? There's no direct sunlight at all right. because there's there's a, a chicken wire on top, and it's a really small concrete yard. You get to come out one hour. So a day. you didn't see the sun for how many years? Uh, ten years. You did not see the sun for at ten all. years. For ten years, I, I was as bright as a as a as a, um, a light bulb when I got out. You see how dark I am right now. Yeah. I remember looking at my first driver license when I got out, and I was like, wow. I was really, really jaundiced, um, really, really like bright yellow, um, and that's that's that's. Did you the, see any? You didn't see a tree? No. Uh, one time they let me out of there by accident to the to the general population at Pelican Bay, um, and I remember coming out of the concrete walls and going onto the regular GP yard, and there was grass, and I remember how shocking that green was to me. Yeah. It was like being in another world. Um, because, uh, we suffer from, uh, sensory deprivation. Um, that's what I suffer from now. Um, it's very difficult for me to, to give a lot of affection, um, physically. I try and my wife understands this. Um, so sensory deprivation, um, everything is gray. Uh, the only thing you have outside your cell is your TV. It's a 13 inch TV. That's it. So that's, that's superficial. It's not really grass. Right. If you see it. So when you see real grass, um, when you get to touch somebody, it's it's because you never ever have any physical contact. So it's it's intense. So everything is kind of in, everything intense. is electric. Um, the, your door opens up electrically. You go into a shower that opens up electrically. It closes, and you come back in your cell. It closes. You go out to the rec yard. It opens. Um, so everything is done electrically. Um, but but education. I mean, I read a lot. I taught myself English grammar in there, uh, pro writing. Um, 
I studied history. Um, I studied um, psychology. Any, any particular things in history or psychology kind of... I really delved into to, um, to, uh, religion, uh-huh. uh, religions of the world, um, Mexican Mexican history. I know a lot about, um, but the the thing that that my passion was was grammar, English, mm-hmm. English grammar was because I want to write. I knew right. I wanted to write, right. um, so I, I write well. I write well. I think I speak well most of the time, and it really really shocks me that people don't really know how crazy I really am. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's so it's it's incredible. It's incredible when I'm when I'm at an interview or something. Um, people think I'm really sane. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I I might I might suffer a little bit from um, PTSD, maybe. Y- you think? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't need a psychiatrist to tell me that. Uh, and I don't I take mean, medication. Shit, the things that you have had a front row seat for, you know, things that you've had done to you, things that you've done. Uh, it's it's mind boggling that you're uh, not only still standing, but that you're functioning. Yes, and then I'm able to be a father and a husband. All of the armed robberies. Do you ever picture the faces of the people whose faces you put the guns in front of, and and what sometimes um, they might be experiencing today? I know I caused them a lot of pain. Yes, because I'm thinking I I know if somebody pulled a gun out and I'm in a diner. That's going to fuck me up for a long time, just seeing a gun, because I don't know what their intent is. I don't know if they're crazy. I, you know, I'm just imagining what it's like um, for those people and, and, you know, one sober person to another, you know, for us to, to, to find peace and really cleanse our souls. Sometimes we, we got to picture the harm that we caused others. And so... I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Uh, so as as um, as a victim myself, mm-hmm. I have a really good idea yeah. of, of what they went through. Um, I was actually stabbed in prison by my own people. Um, that was a politic thing, mm-hmm. just prison politics, which would shock the heck out of me mm-hmm. that this happened. Um, so I got stabbed like 13 times in my back Wow! by two people. Um, thank God there was two other people that were there to help me. So it was just a prison politic thing, nothing mm-hmm. about um, uh, anything like uh, being a, a rat or anything like that. Right. It was just prison politics. But that that left me in shock. And I remember sitting in the infirmary um, leaking from my wounds and thinking, like, like what the heck, you know? Um, there's been a lot of times, I mean, I've been robbed before at mm-hmm. gunpoint. Um, and what, know, go, what goes through your mind when a gun is in your face? It's it's like uh, well I've always I've always been even before I started robbing I mean I remember uh, telling one of my girlfriends before when I had a really nice car I said look if somebody walks up to us and, and wants this car I'm giving it to them and your purse and your clothes and your shoes mm-hmm. and we're gonna walk even if we're walking naked so I I've known at a very young age to not be bravo mm-hmm. um, because I guess I know what the mindset is. Of somebody who's desperate. Yes, yes. So even now, I mean, um, and I'm not going to hurt anybody. The only way that I would probably hurt anybody in my life now is if somebody broke into my house and tried to run out with one of my kids. Yeah. And even then, I wouldn't kill them. I think I would just like hold them down until the cops came. Okay. So I, I don't mind sharing this next piece with you. 
Um, it, it's 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 a very big breakthrough in my life. Um, so I live in Chatsworth now. Mm-hmm. I live right next door to my church, and and uh, so some as I was going to school, you know, you were there at my graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody stole like all my books ah. out of my car, <laughs> fifteen units worth of books, uh, my backpack, and and I had a. a a computer carrying case. They thought it was, I guess they thought it was a laptop in there. It was just all my books. I had just organized everything for the end of the semester. Um, so they stole everything. So you were, you were looking for a suspect wearing glasses. <laughs> I came, I, so I, I said, you know what, I'm going to make a right instead of a left the morning that I went to work. And I saw this little guy coming out of the one over the wall. He had a big black trash bag and I stopped. He had a backpack on. I stopped. I rolled down the window. I said, is that your backpack? He goes, yeah, this is my backpack. I knew in my heart, Paul, I knew that that was my stuff in the bag, mm-hmm. in that black trash bag. He had a glad bag. And I drove off. Because it looked like your backpack? No, that was not my backpack. Oh, okay. I, yeah. that, I don't know what I would have done. Right. But, but I know my stuff was in that bag. It just so I, I know God put that right there. I know God put that person there. Like, how's this feel? No, like, what are you going to do? I see. Like, what are you going to do? Let's let's put your sobriety I, to the test. I drove to Devonshire Police Department and made my very first police report. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is a sign of change. So I, I was in there. I waited for them to open because I was on my way to work. It was early. Um, the cops, uh, they were they were totally cool. I mean, one of them, like, um, he goes, he goes, you've been to prison before. You know, we're having a conversation. I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I could tell. You know, he's looking at my, all my tattoos and. And, you know, he had a brother. He has a brother doing life in prison, um, Puerto Rican guy from New York. He, now, he was a New York PD. Now he's an LAPD. And we had a really great conversation, you know, and I got to talk to him about God. And and, and one of them was a Christian, and, and it was just like, this is where I'm supposed to be right now, not over there beating that guy's butt for stealing mm-hmm. my stuff or, or fighting him and maybe getting stabbed or shot. Right. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I have that report in my glove compartment <laughs> and i told him as i'm walking out they're like man we feel really bad about that man you know it was like all my books so they were they were feeling bad worse than i and i yeah. said you know what how many people have filed this stuff on me for a lot worse man this is nothing you know i'm so appreciative that i can stand here today to do this well bobby thank you for for coming and uh taking time out of your schedule and and sharing all this stuff and answering some great. of my uh some of my very personal questions it's been great and this is the longest interview i've done so far and, and i've mm-hmm. been able to get a lot out in an hour and yeah. i appreciate it. it's very yeah. therapeutic <laughs> all right back at you man thank you you're welcome well i gotta say that that was uh it was an amazing amazing conversation i learned so much and i love when we do an episode that breaks new ground for this for this podcast. Many many thanks to uh, to Bobby. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Crazed. It's a new podcast created by the National Mental Health Innovation Center, and it highlights big new ideas in the world of mental health, from how to transform mental health treatment to prevention and stigma reduction, and the visionaries behind these ideas. Uh, the two hosts are uh, Matt Vogel and Rick Recadal. Matt is the founder and executive director of the NMHIC and also a former professional stand-up. And Rick is uh, or was the senior executive at DreamWorks Animation. And their guests 
are familiar with the impact of mental health, both personally and professionally. And you'll find compelling stories, information about cutting-edge mental health technology, and just great dialogue about difficult issues. Guests include policymakers, nonprofit leaders, researchers, technologists, filmmakers, and more. And the ideas and stories presented on Crazed are the kind that you dig and will probably be talking about long after you've heard the episode. So you can find Crazed anywhere you get your podcasts or on crazedpodcast.com. Subscribe and listen today. I'm going to read a couple of surveys. Uh, it sounds like a, a neighbor, of course, has just started doing construction as I as I hit record, so we'll see how long this lasts. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Get Me the Fuck Out of Here. He, uh, what is he? He's in his 20s. How would you like to be remembered? That if I was ever a weirdo, it's only because I had a slightly better grasp on the human condition than most people. How does it feel writing that? A little egotistical and like it ignores the fact that I'm weird because I didn't have friends growing up. Uh, How would you use a time machine only to see significant historical and personal events for myself? If I could, I'd love to experience them as a non-affecting observer. I should feel grateful to my patient and generous parents for letting me live with them after moving cities and looking for a new job, but I fucking hate it here. I can't wait to get the fuck out of here. I have a week before I work, and I can't do anything except sit around and try not to feel anything. I can't enjoy myself here. I can't relax. I hate talking to my parents. I hate seeing them every day. I hate feeling like a jerk for being annoyed every time they try to talk to me. But everything they say is so dull and inane, and all I want is my own goddamn place. I'm supposed to feel confident and like I'm doing something good with my life and like I'm a good and likable person, but I don't. I'm constantly arrested with guilt and shame for all the times I've hurt people or made them feel bad or been made to feel bad by someone. I obsess over all the mistakes I've made and try so hard to tell myself I'm okay. I'm doing a good job, but I just hate myself right now. I feel so friendless alone and alone. You know, my thought is, as I was reading your survey, is it, it, it sounds like you're so emotionally disconnected from your parents. Um, I mean, that, that, that seems obvious, but you seem like someone who is yearning for some type of emotional connection and you're, you're really trapped in your, your head. And I don't know whether or not your parents are capable of having an emotional, uh, conversation. My, my hunch is probably not. And a lot of times I think that's why we experience things as being annoying is because there, there's a lack of connection and it just feels, it, it's almost worse than being alone. When you're around people but feel disconnected from them, it, I don't know about you, but it, it brings about a sadness that I don't even experience being alone. Uh, sadness maybe is not the right term, but a a longing for for connection and a just wanting to get the fuck out of there. So I relate to that. How does it make you feel to write your real feelings out? I don't know. A little relieved, but it doesn't change the months I have left before I can afford an apartment. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Not really. To be honest, I feel like I've made it in an abnormally long time without having a bunch of guilt and shame issues. 
Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? I guess, question mark. I know people do, but I don't know anyone I can talk to about it. Maybe it'd be better if I had some equally ashamed friends. I think a support group would be awesome for you, and I think you would find the connection that you're looking for. And I I find it. Having deep conversations with people I trust is so so energizing and life-affirming to me, and it just brings me, you know, often a, a sense of peace and I don't know, just a feeling that I'm where I'm supposed to be in the universe because one of the things that I hate experiencing the most is this sinking feeling that I'm doing the wrong thing at the wrong time the wrong way and that everybody else has it figured out and that I'm just not doing life right. And that's generally the mean part of our brain not wanting to make peace with reality. Not that we can't ever learn and grow and maybe change up our day-to-day activities, but it's such a mean black and white way of looking at ourselves and where we are in the in the present moment. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for filling that out. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Fufu. She writes, after listening to this podcast for a good year or two while running, I finally got enough courage to meet my problems head on. I started to meet with a therapist that specializes in anxiety, a psychiatrist, and got referred to my family doctor for prescriptions. Thank you, Universal Healthcare. My therapist had mentioned that it is difficult to get people with anxiety to try medication because they fear the worst. I'm a catastrophic thinker, go figure. However, she encouraged me to think about the side effects of not being on medication. I've heard you say the same thing on the podcast. So I went to my family doctor and spent an hour talking to her about everything. She wrote a prescription of Prozac for me. I finally go to my local pharmacist after a few weeks of holding on to this prescription and debating. I'm ready to take the pills. When he looks at the prescription, the pharmacist looks right back up at me and asks if I've ever tried yoga instead. What a dick. What a dick. Thank you for sharing that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans woman uh, who calls herself Jill. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. I was getting close with a gay man that I met at a party. I'm a trans woman, but I was not out and was still presenting male at the time. I knew he was interested in me sexually, and I started to entertain the idea of having sex with a man, something I had never done. I let him take me out to a bar and see where the night goes. He bought me several shots, and that's the last thing I remember. I don't remember riding to his apartment. I don't remember puking or undressing for him to wash my clothes. However, I do remember being in his kitchen, wearing only his oversized shirt and being bent over the counter and penetrated. I remember thinking that I was okay with this, this that this is what I wanted. This is fine. I remember a few more sex acts after that and then sleeping in his bed. I've wrestled with this night ever since. It's been a couple of years. I'm not sure how I feel about it. On one hand, I was willing to have sex with him, and it wasn't entirely unenjoyable. On the other hand, I was in no state of mind to consent, and I absolutely consider it to be rape. And that's one of the things that's such a mind 
fuck about unwanted sexual activity, whatever you want to call it, is that it, it's not wiped away by the fact that we wanted to have sex because part of the consent is the way that we have sex when we have sex uh, and and that's just because we're we're ready and willing doesn't mean we're ready and willing for everything she's never been physically or uh, emotionally abused uh, her darkest thoughts, I've had intrusive thoughts about feces, namely eating it. I used to fear this thought like crazy until I learned about intrusive thoughts and how to deal with them. But then I had a new fear. What if I'm not actually transgender? When I was struggling with denial about my gender identity, I used to try to avoid trans thoughts at all cost. I was afraid of these thoughts, much like how I was afraid of my thoughts about eating poop. What if my thoughts of being the wrong gender were just intrusive thoughts that I brought into I bought into because I didn't know how to deal with intrusive thoughts like I do now did I just convince myself to live out my greatest fear I think I'm just having intrusive thoughts about intrusive thoughts at this point I know I'm trans but these thoughts make me feel completely crazy sometimes then I look in the mirror and see a man in women's clothing clothing and think oh god I am crazy that is not crazy that is not crazy. And one of the things that my therapist will say to me is, and the former guest, Kimberly Quinlan, who talks so great about intrusive thoughts in OCD, is it's an intrusive thought if it's counter to what we want in our morality. It's not an intrusive thought if it's about something that, that we desire. And that is in line with who we are and who we, who we want to be. Darkest secrets. I'm still in the process of coming out, so me being trans is my biggest secret. I also never reveal that I've never had sex aside from one raping. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My whole life, my biggest turn-on is just the idea of being a woman, having sex as a woman, having breasts and a vagina, feeling my vagina being penetrated. I watch female point-of-view porn, and it's intense. It also makes me feel a deep, deep sadness because it will only ever be a fantasy. What, if anything, do you wish for, unrealistically, to be biologically female and go back in time to experience youth as a female? Realistically, question mark, to just find happiness with what I am, a trans woman. Have you shared these things with others, only with therapists, and not even as intensely as I've as I have written about it here. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm realizing that I'm writing how passionately I wish I could express these feelings with others. I feel better writing it and would feel a million times better if I could share this with someone. I'm currently working with my therapist to get through my shame and be able to open up about this. Thank you so much for this really beautiful and, and heartfelt survey. And I'm so sorry that you had to experience um, what you did um, and that you're struggling with self-doubt about who you are and but I can tell you from, from reading your survey you just sound like a really really sweet sensitive soul and 
I have the feeling if you just keep opening up and finding healthy people to connect to, uh, that, that self-love and that self-acceptance will, will come and you'll find the, the peace and acceptance that you've been looking for. It just, it just takes time and I wish it didn't, <laughs> I wish it didn't, but thank you for your survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who, who calls herself prisoner in a room. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say it's much worse than that. I would say totally chaotic. Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. From before I can remember, my parents had and still have a live-in servant slash housekeeper slash nanny. Also, my father had an unmarried sister who would stay over at our house regularly when I was a child. Both women would share the same room as me and my twin sister and, quote, sleep with us and share our bed. They, quote, took care of us. As part of taking care of us, they molested us in the bed and the bath from before I can remember to the preteen years. That was the unspoken, quote, price we had to pay for, quote, being taken care of. My parents were largely absent working professionals who were not involved in child care. I feel confused and angry about the abuse. For one thing, I do not recall any penetration, just fondling of genitals. That, that, that does not matter. Violation is violation. And it's, yeah. And even that is a very, very dim memory. The only two reasons why I know for sure there was inappropriate behavior were, number one, when I was nine years old, I told my three-year-old sister, do not let anyone touch your private parts. Why would a nine-year-old tell a three-year-old that? Where would I have gotten that idea? This was years before sexual abuse and incest was a public topic in the media. Number two, my childhood best friend told me and my twin sister that those two women tried to touch her inappropriately, and my friend had said no. That was the first time the subject was discussed between me and my sister. Sometimes I still doubt myself about whether it really happened or not, especially when I'm around my family. Uh, she has never been physically abused. Not sure if she's been emotionally abused. She writes not, uh, yeah, she writes not sure. Any positive experiences with the people who abused you? Yes, they provided the only attention and caring and, quote, love that I received as a child. They gave me gifts. And that's one of the mind fucks is the grooming. The grooming, the price that people pay. And so many predators understand and can so quickly hone in on that neediness and provide what it is that child's looking for or a facsimile of it and use that as the bait to then get what they want. What are your darkest thoughts? I can't wait until my abusers are dead because what they did messed me up. But also I can't wait for my parents to be dead too because their neglect allowed the abuse to happen. Then I won't have to pretend that everything is all right. What are your darkest secrets? My deepest, darkest secrets mostly have to do with my long-term history of depression. That basically, since I was first hospitalized 
hospitalized at the age of 17. My life has not been, quote, normal. I barely graduated from high school. I dropped out of college. I haven't been able to hold down a full-time job. And I moved in with and married someone who supports me because I can't support myself. And I struggle every day to keep on living despite suicidal ideation and overwhelming feelings of depression. I think it would be so, so important for you to process what happened to you as fully as possible with somebody who is really experienced, a professional who's really experienced in dealing with this. Because that is, I mean, of course you're experiencing all those things that you are, that you were, like you, the name you used for the survey, you were a prisoner in your own home. And worse than just a prisoner, you were being tortured. That's torture. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My most powerful sexual fantasies involve being used and abused, not having any control in sexual situations, feeling powerless. It gives, it makes a lot of sense to me given my abuse history. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And why? To my abusers, I hate you for what you did to me. To my parents, I hate you for letting me be hurt and abused. I'd like to say that because I've not been able to confront any of them and don't know if I ever will be, quote, strong enough to. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could not be scared of life, of waking up each day alive. I wish I could trust myself that I would be able to deal with whatever life throws at me. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared these things with my therapists and my husband. It went okay when I shared it. I could be wrong, but just from reading this survey, it it sounds like there isn't a tremendous amount of processing of it going on with your your therapist, Uh, and maybe maybe finding a therapist that does uh, trauma work, PTSD work, like EMDR or somatic experiencing, because stuff that's buried that that deep down that our body is still holding on to it needs not only does the you know the mind need the release of talking about it but the body needs the release so that our central nervous system isn't just constantly on high alert and that i think is probably why you're waking up just terrified to face the world who wouldn't look at what your world was like when you were a kid How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel clearer and hopeful that maybe by sharing them, someone else will feel less alone. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? That sharing what we think and have experienced is the only way to get through the hard times. I've been through a lot of different hard times, and social support is crucial to survive them. Thank you so much for that. It sounds like I'm telling you some stuff that you already know, so I apologize if uh, I sound redundant. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself my own worst enemy. And um, he shares that he's been in a relationship with his girlfriend for just over a year. And he writes, when my girlfriend told me that she identifies as bisexual early on in our relationship, My stomach immediately sank in that moment, not because I'm against her being her authentic self or anybody else doing the same, but for me and my self-esteem issues, 
That meant more people to be jealous of and compare myself to. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, my girlfriend told me that she had a physical attraction to a female coworker of hers, and she didn't know how to deal with it. Naturally, I withdrew into myself and had my very first panic attack. I got a question whether that was appropriate for your girlfriend to share that with you, especially knowing the issues that you have. I think it would be different if you and your girlfriend, if there wasn't the issue of of jealousy. Um, Anyway, I withdrew into myself and had my very first panic attack. Due to this, I had to let my boss know that I wouldn't be able to work the following day due to a panic attack's debilitating nature. He called me up the next day to check on me, and it turns out he has anxiety too. He works through self-esteem issues and has had panic attacks on multiple occasions. He even opened up to me and told me that when I need someone to get some shit off my chest, he'd love to listen. And for the very first time that anybody has said that to me, I believed him. Who knew that the person that I thought I would be disappointing by not showing up to work would be the person to relate to me and support me when I needed it most. Thank you for that. And what a great example of our inability to predict the fruits of opening up and being vulnerable. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And if you're out there and you're, and you're struggling, um, just never forget that you're, that you're not alone. And, um, if you haven't subscribed yet, hit that subscribe button. And the next few weeks are going to be best of shows because I'm taking some much needed time off. And, uh, hopefully when I, when I come back, I'll, I'll feel recharged and, We should have uh, new episodes going up uh, starting uh, the first Friday in in August. But these episodes that I'm I'm putting up that have been run before are from quite a while ago, and I think they're great episodes. So even if you've heard them before, hopefully you'll enjoy them. How's that for me being codependent for subtly shaming myself for wanting to take a break. (laughs) Anyway, never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.